Hi, Shane. Oh, this is this is already weird. Hi, Vicky. Hi. Yeah, oh. I thought I thought we'd change it up. Oh, all right. I don't I don't know if I like it. I mm. do you have control issues? <laughs> do I have control issues? <laughs> the most rhetorical question anyone has ever asked me. <laughs> perhaps okay, I okay. do, Vicky. Perhaps I do. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> I think that's a very strong perhaps. Well, Today, too bad, because today I want to ask you about a question. I want to ask you okay. about field work. Okay. Yeah. So you were a research scientist that did work in the field, right? You worked in the field? I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. So what's a memorable experience that you had while you were out in the field? Oh, man. Um, yeah, that's actually kind of hard to, to nail down. I didn't go anywhere really exotic. I was doing a lot of my work in kind of rural Pennsylvania and rural Tennessee. Um in, like, I love being in the field. I, I will say one time, so a lot of my work involved, or part of my work involved, turtle trapping. And how you, one way to trap turtles is basically you put out these things we call hoop nets, which are, um, picture like a finger trap, but it's closed at one end. So the idea is that turtles go into this open end and they can't quite get back out because of the way the funnel works. And so we'd, we'd set these nets up in ponds or whatever overnight, put bait and stuff in them, come back and get them. And I still do this to this day when I do my stuff um, in, in the field. But one time we were, we went out as part of our project and we were collecting nets and I'm, I'm going through and I'm literally chest deep. I have chest waders on chest deep in this pond and there's vegetation all around me. And my colleague, uh, who's a good friend, he said, Hey, and then he said some words that I can't repeat in this podcast, <gasps> but essentially, uh, so there's a water moccasin about <gasps> two feet to your right. And for those who might not be aware, a water moccasin uh, is a it's a snake. It's a venomous snake. Um, snake. And it's a bad snake. Uh, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a herpetologist. And so I don't, like snakes don't really bother me. Even venomous snakes aren't. Yeah. Like, I don't care about like copperheads or rattlers. <laughs> they'll They'll let <laughs> you know if they're there. Water moccasins are mean. They are like fast in the water, right? They're very fast. They're kind of stocky. They're like a thick snake. And they're the only, and again, this is like anecdotal and whatever, but they're the only snake I've ever had kind of like chase me. Ah! Uh, they're, They're very kind of territorial. And so I literally, I'm, I'm chest deep and I look to my right and Literally two feet away. Oh my god! Kind of like staring at me is this like very venomous snake, just kind of like looking at me. I, I don't know if it was looking at me, but facing my direction at least. And I'm holding this kind of trap really awkwardly, and I just freeze. And we probably stand there for thirty seconds, and it doesn't sound very long, but I count looking to thirty and think about that. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, and eventually it just kind of I guess doesn't see me as a threat or whatever and swims away uh and i get out of there very quickly uh and I, i've come across many of those like it, it's um, where i was i was in memphis like it's not uncommon to see them but that's quite literally the closest i've ever come and snakes like again i'm i'm a herpetologist like i've dealt with snakes but snakes are not my thing uh no, i mean just I the don't... like surprise of it was um let's just say memorable so <laughs> yeah <laughs> Not an experience that I, I it was fine, but not experience I would love to recreate. And uh, I will say happy living in 
our area now. We have a handful of venomous snakes, but that that is not one of them. Yeah, not ones that are going to be creeping up to you on the water. Hopefully Probably. not. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to come like eye to eye with with one anytime soon. No, thank you. <laughs> Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Well, that was fun. I like being the one that asks the questions. Yeah, right. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty great. Uh, but for now, it, it's time for me to, uh, to take back over. Oh, right. You. So this is the part where you go, we're talking about field work because... <laughs> This prompt was because. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, it's going to sound silly now when I say it, but all right. So we're talking about field work today <laughs> because it's that time of year when many who do field work are out in the field. And EOS, our news magazine here at AGU, has a special issue out right now called Out of Office, featuring all sorts of stories about scientists in the field. I really like that out of office. I know. I, I didn't actually realize. I knew they were doing a special issue, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't realize that that's what it was going to be called. And you know that I appreciate a good pun here at Third yeah. Pod. Uh, so in the spirit of mm-hmm. being out of office and in the field, we have a preview today of our next mini series, Fieldwork Rocks. Oh, but I'm bump clever. I love puns so much. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) All right. So sit back, relax, and take a trip to the field with us. So I'm Joris Nerat. I'm from Belgium. Um, I'm a full-time scientific illustrator. I've been that for the last 10 years. Yeah, I've been always interested in, in nature and drawing. And yeah, I mostly work for nature reserve, visitor centers, magazines, books, also a private commission now and then. But I mostly do identification drawings of, of fauna and flora. I've been drawing as long as I can remember, really. And yeah, my interest in the natural world was sparked at a very early age as well, because my parents were both teachers and we traveled a lot. I remember when I was a kid, I I always could sit in front of the car because I was great at spotting things. So I had to sit in front. And at one point, I thought I saw some sand walking when we were driving through the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And it turned out to be my very first chameleon I saw. And I was also like very inspired by natural history plates and 19th century explorers and, and the art they made like especially the, the aesthetic part of the plates, like the, the combination of the illustrations and the typography. I'm Ali Pechia. I'm a graduate student at Columbia University and Lamont Dory Earth Observatory. But how did you come to be on this particular expedition? I applied for it, put a project proposal in. Each scientist also has to propose their own project based on what they might expect the materials drilled to be. And then, you know, ended up getting accepted. Had, had a little bit of cold feet. It's a big commitment. It's two months on a ship. It was, in our case, you know, over Christmas, over New Year's. So I was definitely nervous, but everybody um, who 
I work with said, oh, no, no, you have to go once in a lifetime experience. Absolutely make it happen. And it was worth it. So, yeah. My name is Luan Haywood. I kind of have two titles. One is I work on shore at Texas A&M in, at a research institute called the International Ocean Discovery Program. There I work as a research associate, but more importantly, for most of my job, I sail on the research drill ship Joydee's Resolution, where I sail as a marine science technician. What do you think some of the top scientific findings are from work done on the JR? The scientific discoveries of the Joydee's Resolution have been hugely influential in our field. Some of the first expeditions were drilling these transects across the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which helped confirm the theory of plate tectonics. Some early expeditions were done in the Mediterranean that lended great evidence towards the Mycenaean salinity crisis, which is where the Mediterranean closed and dried up and formed these thick beds of evaporites, salts, and gypsums. The discoveries of the Joides Resolution have really shaped the way that we think of microbial life in the deep ocean. This has really come out in the past 20, 30 years. Everywhere we look on Earth, we find microbial life. And some of the most extreme environments that have been sampled are samples that we got from the Joides Resolution. So my name is Heather Holbach. I am on the research faculty at Florida State University. But I'm also a Cooperative Institute employee with NOAA through the Northern Gulf Institute, which Florida State is a member of. And that is to work with uh, NOAA's lab down in Miami, the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. I'm really curious, is the eye of the storm, like, what is that like? What is that experience to go in it? You know, you're probably one of you know, a few people, maybe more than a few people, but a handful of people who've been inside the eye of a storm. So could you describe that? There's really nothing like it. The eye wall is typically where you get the most turbulence in the storm. And so you go from this region of really heavy rain, you know, streaking across your window and potentially a good bit of turbulence. Not all storms are very turbulent, but a lot of the stronger ones are, or storms that are changing strength tend to be. But you go from this really bumpy ride to you all of a sudden, there's no clouds out your window. It clears up and it's so smooth. And it happens in a split second. It is the most crazy experience, but it also helps you understand what's happening if you're on the surface, how quickly that changes and how you need to be really careful if you are on the ground in the eye, because when you go back out the other way, that change happens just as fast. You go from super smooth, sunny, potentially skies, clear skies to howling winds in a matter of minutes. So that's one of the things we always try to remind people is you need to be really careful because those winds will pick up really quickly and can surprise you. My name is Margaret Betcher 
and I am an affiliate research professor at the University of New Hampshire. Well, so the pandemic um, ended up giving us some interesting challenges because we had put out these seismometers. So we dropped the, the seismometers over the side of the ship and left them there. And so after three months after, or yeah, about three months after we deployed our seismometers, the magnitude six that we were expecting, 6.1, occurred. And at the same time, the pandemic set in and it really became very unclear whether we'd be able to go back and retrieve the seismometers before their batteries ran out. We really need their batteries so that we have very good timing for the clocks on these these instruments. Otherwise, we can't get the details of the timing of the seismic waves is essential in order to figure out where the earth where the all the little earthquakes occurred and and all the details of the seismic waves. So we needed to collect them within 12 to 14 months of when we deployed them. And unfortunately, our location is very remote and it's quite far from any, especially any U.S. port. So we were deemed a very high risk experiment um, and it wasn't clear that we'd be able to go. But we did have this very valuable data. We knew the earthquake occurred and we wanted to be able to see all of the patterns of seismicity surrounding it. So luckily we were able to go. There were many different iterations of when we'd go or where we'd go, who would go on board. And in the end, we just had one scientist, the chief scientist, John Collins, who is also the lead of the Ocean Bottom Instrument Center. So he's he's really the ideal person to go on this cruise because we were picking up our 51 seismometers and redeploying them. So it was quite an OBS ocean bottom seismometer heavy cruise. So we were very lucky to do that. Vicky, do uh, do these stories, or at least uh, snippets of stories, give you a sense of longing to uh, potentially have been a field scientist? I think so. Yeah. No, I like being out in the world, out doing stuff. In the world. Right? Like doing like actual hands on things. Yeah. And what about you? Do you miss it? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I know that's that's a really funny. I do, um, but I am happy with where I'm at now, and and frankly, I do get this opportunity every summer to teach sure. a field course to undergraduates in disease ecology, which is what I actually went to school for uh, for a few weeks. So, and and that actually starts pretty soon. Um, not when this episode, but shortly after when this episode oh. will be coming out. So, I mean, that definitely that scratches that itch. I feel like you just made another joke. There's probably a lot of mosquitoes out in the field. A lot of bug and bites. A, and a ton of ticks. Yeah. One thing oh. that my students really love, because it's it's a disease ecology class. So we talk about things like Lyme and Rocky Mountain Rocky Mountain spotted fever, like uh, tick diseases, is that we literally go walking through a field one day with <gasps> the intent of basically having as many ticks as possible get on them. <laughs> I feel like you have to sign a waiver. Your face right now. Well, they're not like wearing shorts. It's 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 the very kind of you have your light colored pants on and you tuck them into your socks and like all of the protocols are absorbed or observed. But uh, 
You need like a waiver. You need a counselor to be available at the a end. A counselor? Yeah. They're just Don't you, When you feel buggy, I would feel buggy for the rest of my life. I would oh, never. Oh, yeah. No, that's the thing. And I, 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 it depends on when we do it in the course. It's just like when it falls out. But I've, I've noticed that when we do it early uh, in the course, in the three weeks, mm-hmm. like anytime we go into the forest or a field with high grass or anything, uh, they're... And, and me too, frankly, even though I've been yeah. doing this for a long time, but they're uh, a little more attuned more to uh, what's <laughs> this is this is this has gone off the rails. Oh uh, so so with that, <laughs> we'll just end it there. <laughs> and that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to you, Shane, for producing the episode, and big thanks to our numerous producers for this upcoming series. And thanks as well to Colin Warren for audio engineering and to Karen Romano-Young for the artwork for this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please rate and review us, and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Can the image for this one be like, um, what's the thing like? Field work rocks. Field work rocks. Like Cleveland like rocks. Cleveland rocks. Do you yeah, want like yeah, yeah. Drew Carey in our picture? Is that isn't that? But that's from something. It's not just like. It's isn't it from, like an album or a song? It was. Yeah, I think it was a song before the Drew Carey show. Yeah. But oh, yeah. it's famous because of the Drew Carey show. Sure. I mean, anything Drew Carey touches turns to gold. Which is the wildest sentence that I think anyone has ever said. You know what I mean? Ask anyone. I Ask anyone in Gen Z who Drew Carey is. And be like, who are you talking about? Wait. By the presidents of the United States of America? Oh, yeah. You didn't know that? No. I guess I've never heard the actual song. Yeah. They've had three hits. They had Peaches. They had Lump. And they had this. Lump's a good song. Lump's a great song. Everyone loves peaches. Lump's so much better. Lump's really good.